This is an iconic sound. A sound that a generation of Americans could instantly identify. It's the rotary blades of a Huey helicopter. The helicopter's original designation was HU-1, hence the Huey nickname. Bell Helicopter in Fort Worth, Texas, developed the Huey for the Army. Around 7,000 of these helicopters were deployed to Vietnam during the Vietnam War. Dense jungle, mountains, and a lack of passable roads in the combat zones made them essential to the war effort. And the Huey became a symbol of the Vietnam War. For soldiers in Vietnam, the sound of a Huey could mean the arrival of fresh troops or supplies. It could mean support in the form of gunships. And a medical evacuation mission could also sound exactly like this. I'm Evan Windham. From the Bullock Museum, this is Vietnam on Tape, a Texas story podcast. Before we get any further, I need to let you know that this podcast does contain vivid descriptions of war, audio of military combat, and strong language, so it may not be appropriate for some listeners. An estimated 210,000 medics were inducted into the Army over the course of the Vietnam War. Many received orders for Vietnam. One of those medics, Jim Kearney, was first assigned to an artillery unit in 1969. It was like a mash hospital there, where the people that came in out of the field wounded were given. It's like an emergency room, basically, you know. And they uh, had me stand there and watch this parade of broken, shot-up people coming in for a full week and getting used to blood. Jim didn't just treat combat-related wounds. He treated all sorts of medical issues, such as foot rot or animal bites. He also made sure soldiers took their malaria tablets and tested drinking water. And once a week, the medical station opened treatment up to Vietnamese civilians in a nearby village. As Jim told me about his duties, I remembered his medic's bag he'd shown me when I visited him at the ranch. It's a small bag, and it gets even smaller when I consider all of Jim's responsibilities and all the people he helped. Jim performed these duties for months until he was transferred to an infantry division during the invasion of Cambodia. Eventually, he was reassigned once more. This time, he went to the 1st Air Cavalry. He was accepted as a combat medic on medical evacuation, or medevac operations, with the 15th Medical Battalion. The medics on the battlefield were out what we call outside the wire, meaning that they were not at base camps. They were out in the field with the soldiers. They were very courageous members of the uh, combat team. That's retired Colonel Greg Simpson. Greg was assigned to the 1st Air Cavalry as a helicopter pilot. His life intersects with Jim's during a key moment in the story, but we'll get to that a little bit later. Up to this point in the podcast, I've spoken mostly with 1AO noncombatant conscientious objectors. Men who served in the military but refused to carry a weapon based on moral or religious principles. But Greg, on the phone with me from his home in Tennessee, is different. Greg volunteered after receiving his draft notice. One day, just out of the clear blue, I got a draft notice. I didn't think I would be drafted because I was in college and I was also married, but somehow the draft board didn't know that. <laughs> so I got a draft notice, and I went to the draft board, and I said, hey, I'm in college, and I'm married. What do I have to do to get to defer? They were probably not correct, but they said, well, you've been drafted. You're going to have to go through the process. 
And I said, well, are there any other options if I enlist rather than be drafted? And they said, well, as a matter of fact, there is. The Army is really needing helicopter pilots right now very badly. If you volunteer, we'll try to get you into flight school. Army helicopters had multiple uses during the Vietnam War, but one use in particular struck a connection with Greg. I was fortunate enough to graduate in the upper end of my class, so I was able to select the type of missions that I wanted to fly. And everybody was very, very aware that they would be most likely heading to Vietnam because that's, that was at the height of that. I saw some uh, videos and some uh, presentations about medevac, and I thought, that's exactly what I want to do. I want to try to do something beyond just uh, supporting our combat casualties. I also wanted to be a part of uh, evacuating sick and needy civilians from their villages back into, say, Saigon or different places where they had Vietnamese hospitals that would help them, and uh, even evacuated enemy soldiers on the battlefield. And it was something that was appealing to me. There was no real front in the tradition of earlier wars. So the American military had a network of combat medical centers and support hospitals where patients could be flown. Aero medevac crews, the teams that manned the medical evacuation helicopters, could provide basic medical care en route, like administering IV fluids and applying bandages. This was a change from previous wars when helicopter fleets were mainly equipped to just transport the wounded to medical facilities. It was the beginning of the terminology, the, the golden hour, and the, what they call the golden hour would mean if we could get the soldier off the battlefield back into a upscale medical facility, his probability of surviving his injuries, if they were survivable at all, went up immensely. And so we would have to go out on these missions because we had to protect the golden hour. Navigate to the coordinates in the jungle, day or night, 24 hours a day, find a pickup site, extract the patient, and bring that patient back to the medical facility at the base camp. The golden hour is a term used in EMS services today. The initial hour after trauma is critical. After that, chances of survival drop dramatically. This approach led to a decreased fatality rate from earlier wars. While these air ambulances allowed for increased recovery and saved many lives, flying into active areas to pick up patients was a dangerous job. In the Vietnam era, medical evacuation helicopters were painted with red crosses. And under the Geneva Conventions, Enemy combatants were not allowed to shoot at medical evacuation helicopters. Turns out they did. <laughs> they did it all the time. They completely ignored it. But the units that flew those helicopters, dust-off units, which were non-First Cavalry Division, they were not armed. They were not able to provide cover fire for themselves. and had to rely on attack helicopters known as Cobras. They weren't just shot at. Medevac helicopters were shot down at more than three times the rate of other helicopter missions during the war. The 1st Cavalry Division commander made it very clear that his uh, medical evacuation helicopters would be armed because we've operated so far forward, there were times 
that we did not have attack helicopter support. It wasn't available to us. Sometimes we had to go out and provide our own security. And all of our helicopters were armed with M60 machine guns. You know, we would use those machine guns to defend ourselves. Not even once did we ever fire machine guns unless we were fired upon. And we'd go out there and pick up these patients in combat scenarios. Sometimes we would go in and we would take intensive automatic weapon fire from a perimeter that was only 50 meters in diameter. So it was a very hostile situation, very dynamic, very frightening. Uh, sometimes the rounds would, that would hit our helicopter would come up between our legs and go vertically straight up between our legs. Oh which gosh. means, what that means is that the enemy has penetrated the defensive perimeter and the soldiers down below us are fighting hand to hand. And that's heavy. The bullet would penetrate the plexiglass and it would go right past your face, for example, and you could literally feel the pressure, the vacuum pressure, and then you could sometimes feel that plexiglass spew up against your face. One air operation in particular, the hoist mission, exponentially increased the danger. The uh, jungle was so dense that we would hover over the trees, maybe 100 feet, and lower the cable of the hoist down to the ground. And then we had to uh, sit there uh, at a hover, and then the ground medics would hoist the patient up into the helicopter. So for a very few minutes uh, on each one of those types of mission, the medic was an easy, easy target for the enemy to shoot at because he's right there in the open door of the helicopter, leaning out, looking down, controlling the hoist as it goes up and down on the hoist cable. So he was in a very uh, uh, precarious position. It takes a lot of uh, concentration to do that, and you really have to keep your mind on what you're doing. It's, it's heroic. A hovering helicopter and a medic exposed in the doorway were extremely vulnerable. I said earlier that Jim Kearney had been accepted to be a medevac medic with the 15th Medical Battalion. From Jim's explanation, accepted was the key term. At this time, I say to myself, I'm not going to and I'll leave it to the luck of the draw. And I'm tired of being out in the mud in the boonies. I'm going to volunteer to be a medevac medic. It was an all-volunteer unit, and they didn't take everybody. You had to be a seasoned medic. They were experienced, high-caliber soldiers, trained to perform their roles as a member of a team. As I'd learned from military historian Gene Mansavage, around 7% of the medics inducted during the Vietnam War were conscientious objectors. I asked Greg about serving with conscientious objector medics. How could he tell that a medic was a CO? Or could he tell at all? You couldn't distinguish them, quite frankly, very easily by how they spoke or what they said. But yet, everybody knew. And mm -hmm. uh, so it was a little mysterious on how everybody would know where would get around. There were more than one in our unit. But to be honest with you, you really couldn't tell that they were conscientious objectors. They, they were just crew members on the ship, and they flew their missions and did their jobs and blended in with the crew very nicely. They were well-trusted and very solid members of our team. 
Greg had known about the existence of conscientious objectors as a child. Greg's father had been in the military, and Greg remembered seeing movies about COs. But his instructors at medevac school had openly spoken to the possibility of a conscientious objector medic being on his crew. They were just very clear that uh, these people, the vast majority of conscientious objectors, were very loyal soldiers. Uh, they were very determined. Uh, they wanted to serve their country in a positive way. Uh, they wanted to do their duty as they saw fit. They just didn't want to take a life. And, and we were taught that in, in uh, medevac school, that they could be very trusted and loyal people not to be uh, uh, denigrated in any way. A medevac crew in the 15th Med was comprised of a medic, a crew chief, a door gunner, and two pilots. While one pilot was flying the helicopter, the other served as the aircraft commander. I assumed that one crew would stick together, but individuals would actually rotate in and rotate out. Because of this, a crew could be put together at a moment's notice, as soon as a call came through. It was just routine, routine, routine. Nothing would happen. And then all of a sudden, chaos. Just utter, absolute chaos. In the peak years of U.S. involvement, a single mission averaged about 50 minutes round trip. That left 10 minutes of time within that golden hour. On one such mission, Greg was the aircraft commander. Jim Kearney was the medic. Okay, Kearney, have you got him inside over there? Jim got that mission on tape. Hold it right there. Now, okay. Bring it on down. Okay, coming down. Clear down left. In our next episode of Vietnam on Tape, we'll hear the mission that started this podcast. This Texas Story podcast is produced by the Bullock Museum in downtown Austin. We tell stories through people, places, and original artifacts. So everything we do is because of people like you who help keep Texas history and culture alive. This podcast is no exception, and we'd like to thank Jim Kearney and Greg Simpson for being a part of it. This episode was edited and mixed by David Shulman. Visit the Bullock Museum online at thestoryoftexas.com, where you can also share your Texas story in the Texas Story Project. It might even find its way into the next season of our podcast. And if you're ever in Austin, be sure to stop by and visit us. For Vietnam on Tape, I'm Evan Windham.